sense of the Buddhist approach is anatta, the realization of not-self. A particular style of reflection in structures like the Four Noble Truths and Paticca Samuppada changes the way of thinking from the self-view of the soul and me, quote-unquote, as an absolute, to anatta, not-self. The problem lies in the fact that not-self, quote-unquote, seems like annihilation. And what frightens people about Buddhism is that not-self and no-soul sound like an absolute position that one has to take as a Buddhist. People who hate God and resent Christianity may become Buddhists because they've got a grudge against God, the soul, sin and guilt. They really want Buddhism to be a kind of atheistic philosophy and a total rejection of the whole Christian experience. But that's not what it is. Buddhism is not atheistic or nihilistic. The Buddha was very careful to avoid such extreme positions. Instead, his teaching is a very skillfully and carefully constructed psychology. Its aim is to help us see through and let go of all the habitual attachments, attitudes born out of ignorance, fear and desire, uh, attitudes that create this illusory sense of a self. So, for over 2,500 years now, Buddhism has managed to survive and keep its purity. And that's because its approach is very clear. There is a Sangha living under the Vinaya discipline, and there's the teaching of the Dhamma. So just to uh, speak a little bit um, uh, about this, it's, it's probably a little, a little bit different uh, now in the 2020s. <laughs> And uh, when uh, when Lumpur Sumedho was first practicing himself and getting interested in, in Buddhism in the 50s, 1950s, so that was 70 years ago, uh, and then in the 50s, 60s and 70s, it was, it was very common that people who um, were interested in Buddhism had been sort of uh, gr uh, thoroughly conditioned, grown up in in uh, uh, in the Western world under the, the kind of... Um, say, the, uh, the presence in the cultures of Judaism or Christianity, uh, Anglican or Episcopalian Christianity, Catholic Christianity. And so in those, uh, those early years of the, the sort of more intense spread of Dhamma in the West, there was quite an anti-Christian um, uh, ethic in particular that people had sort of grown up in an environment where they're told they have to believe in God and that they have to believe in Jesus as their saviour and so forth, uh, or from the, from the uh, the Jewish uh, the Jewish side, particularly uh, immigrant populations into America, the sort of Jewish diaspora from Russia and Ukraine and um, the um, uh, Eastern Europe, uh, Eastern European states uh, to America, welcomed with open arms in the early 1900s, end of the 19th century, early 20th century. That uh, 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 where particularly people suffering from Jewish persecution in in uh, in Russia and uh, what became the Soviet Union um, came to a a, a, a a different life in America, but then their children or grandchildren away from their you know, cultural uh, say format of of the small Jewish village communities in in Russia, Eastern Europe, then similarly they would question that well why do I have to believe in this or who says this is true. So often people who were drawn to Buddhism in the 50s and 60s were, uh, say, pointedly leaving behind them their Christian or their Jewish um, conditioning. And so there was, a, uh, a, in, in, uh, in many respects, and I think what's informing Lumpur's comments here, a kind of um, anti-theistic, uh, um, that Buddhism, in Buddhism we don't believe in God, we don't believe in a creator, we believe in no soul, you know, that's, that, that's us. And so it was um, quite a, a pronounced feature, and I think particularly when Lumpur left Thailand and came to, um, to, to reside here in the UK in the late 70s, a lot of the British Buddhists that he met um, in that period were people who'd very much grown up under Anglican Christianity and had uh, uh, put that behind them and wanted to, to leave all that kind of language and thinking and a, a, um, a, a theistic model behind. And uh, many years ago, when I um, uh, was, I've, I've uh, asked Lumpur Sumedho very, very few questions over the years. <laughs> Usually he was 
uh, answering questions before you ask them. But one question I did ask him was um, when I came, I came to England in late 79. Um, I'd been a bhikkhu for about, not quite a year, about half a year by then. I'd been uh, in Thailand for about two years. And I, I'd noticed that whereas in Thailand almost all of the teachings were about um, so developing the, the practice or dealing with your defilements or, or um, uh, uh, working with uh, various meditation, uh, the uh, forms of meditation and such like. Um, when listening to Lumpur Sumedho teaching at Chithurst in those early days, he seemed to talk a lot about ultimate reality, about the unconditioned, about the um, paramata sacha, the ultimate, uh, ultimate truth or transcendent truth. And so one of the, those very few questions that I ever asked Lumpur Sumato was, you know, this is, is curious that uh, in Thailand you didn't really hear much about Nibbana or the, or the unconditioned or the deathless or ultimate truth, and it was much more about building paramita or, or uh, let's say, the practicalities of, uh, of living and, and trying to be mindful. And one of the things that he said really struck me. He said, well, in this country, a lot of the people who are, are Buddhists have sort of rejected any kind of um, transcendent reality. They, they've, they've been sort of brought up, told to believe in God or to, to believe in Jesus as a savior, and they couldn't believe that. They, they, they had no faith in that. It didn't have any meaning for them. And so they developed this kind of anti-Christian or, or atheistic uh, approach. He said, but what that's left a lot of the uh, Buddhists in Britain and in Europe with is a kind of barrenness, the sense that there's no um, articulation of a quality of transcendence. And so that, um, uh, so he said, I talk about it a lot because that's something that seems to be really missing from the Buddhist field here. So it's there in the Buddha's teachings, teaching about the unconditioned, the unborn, the uncreated, about the um, transcendent uh, truth, Lokutra Panya, supramundane wisdom, and so on. So it's just uh, it, because that seems to be a, a missing part of the Buddhist field here in the UK, uh, that's why uh, he, uh, uh, he was emphasizing it. So that was, that was very striking to me, that he, he'd really noticed that and seen that, that um, Buddhism was being taken as a kind of, of um, uh, sort of materialistic psychology, but left the, uh, that quality of transcendence and, uh, and genuine liberation out of the picture. Does that make sense? Yes. No. <laughs> Silence. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so it, it, it might seem a bit of a refined point, but athe atheism means a belief that there is no no God, there is no ultimate reality. Theos is God, uh, or uh, a, and similarly with the Greek. Uh, and the and the Pali, the A at the beginning is a negation. So atheistic is there is no theos, there is there is no God, um, and uh, or nihilistic nihil means nothing. So <laughs> the, uh, say believing in in nothingness, and um, uh, what you can more accurately describe Buddhism as, rather like like Taoism uh, in in China, is uh, a uh, non-theistic religion. So you might think, what's the difference between atheistic and non-theistic <laughs> so in a way atheistic means there's a belief that there is no ultimate reality there there's uh, god doesn't exist non-theistic is that the religion is not built around the idea of a god or a supreme being or a creator uh, so it there's a slightly different tone so sometimes People, you, you'll hear a number teacher saying that Buddhism isn't atheistic; it's non-theistic. You might go, huh? <laughs> and again, appreciating that English is not the first language of most people here, but it, it is, a, a, I think, an important distinction. So, so I would say, like like Taoism uh, from uh, the religion, uh, the religion of the, as embodied in the Tao Te Ching, uh, it's a very um, uh, powerful spiritual practice and, uh, and, and evokes qualities of, of ultimate reality, but it's not based around a, a creator god. Uh, so that in exactly the same way you say Buddhism, we have uh, the teaching of, of the Dhamma uh, as the ultimate reality. Yeah, there's very much an ultimate reality in the teaching, or we speak about uh, the paramata such ultimate truth, 
but it's not based around a creator god or a supreme being or that that ultimate reality is not personalized in, in any way it's not turned into a, a being or an entity or a, a, any kind of super person so um that uh, it was kind of against that kind of a background that uh, Lumpur is, is speaking here. And it's also interesting how much he uses words like, like God and soul in, in his teachings. And he was, in a way, quite aware that <laughs> a number of people who were listening to him would have a sort of, you know, don't talk about God, I'm trying to get away from that. You know, I, I became a Buddhist to, to not have to, to deal with that. But... Um, Part of the, the I, I feel, again, uh, when, when he's more around and about and you've got the opportunity to ask him questions yourselves, you can put that to him directly. But um, I feel that one of the reasons why he would drop the word God into many of his uh, Dhamma talks, as you've probably been hearing over these last weeks, is that he was trying to help the people in the West to not be reactive about that, that idea uh, uh, but uh, not just to have a, a kind of um, uh, rejection of uh, of, uh, of the word, but also to, to maybe reconfigure how we understand that. And uh, an interesting point in that respect is um, Ajahn Buddhadasa, um, who is a, a, people probably know as a very prominent uh, Dhamma teacher in Thailand, both very uh, much admired and respected as a meditator, also as a a Buddhist scholar, and um, when uh, uh, there's been Christian missionaries in Thailand for about three or four hundred years, and they have never been particularly successful. <laughs> and uh, anyway, a lot, uh, in I think in the fifties, um, or maybe early sixties, they uh, Ajahn Buddhadasa was looking at their translation of the Bible into Thai. And he realized that they were trying to translate the Bible without using any kind of Buddhist terminology whatsoever, which is really difficult because about 30 or 40% of the Thai language is based on Pali. And so um, he, uh, he, and he's a very broad-minded, very creative thinker. And so um, he thought, this doesn't work at all. And he had, he had a very uh, eclectic understanding, a very comprehensive understanding of spiritual teachings. And it is, so, for example... Um, the Gospel of St. John in the, in the original Thai version began something which you would translate as something like, in the beginning was the noun, rather than in the, the original Greek is logos, but in the English it's translated, in the beginning was the word. Uh, and so uh, uh, he thought, in the beginning was the noun? No, that, that doesn't work. So he offered to help them retranslate the Bible into a readable Thai and they, they took him up on the offer. And he also, he was, uh, he was very respected by the Christian community and was actually asked to give a series of lectures at a Jesuit seminary in Thailand. And so there's a little booklet of his teachings called Buddhism and Christianity that's, the, uh, uh, I think, is the, the lectures that he gave at, at, that, uh, at that seminary. So his suggestion was that uh, in, in most instances you could happily translate the word God as Dhamma, and it worked. It works very neatly. Works uh, works very tidily. And also, he said, "Well, in, in Buddhism, when we talk about ultimate reality, we use the word Dhamma. In uh, Christianity, they use the word God. So um, let's take that as the basis and, and, and work from there." So uh, uh, that um, uh, also, uh, Ajahn Chah had great respect for Ajahn Buddha Dasa, and Lumpur uh, Sameda also had been to stay with him and practice with him. Uh, so I think that's sense of uh, using the, the, the word in this way and in, in this kind of context. It's helping the people in the West to reconfigure the, the way of looking at those uh, Christian or Jewish uh, concepts and, and the languaging of things and to help to uh, appreciate those in a, in a bit of a different way. Also, uh, when, when he was younger, Lumpur Sumedha was very, a very devout Christian, but... Uh, even uh, as uh, uh, I think I mentioned a little while ago, he even went to visit the, 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 the local bishop in Seattle to talk about what, it, what was involved in training for the Christian ministry. But uh, as he became a university student, he got uh, too many doubts, too many questions coming into his mind, so he, he didn't follow it through. But uh, I believe he got as far as talking to the bishop, which is um, 
it indicates a, a great seriousness in how he, he um, his sort of religious life took shape in that in that form through his childhood and, and teens. So, any questions, thoughts? Yes, Anagarika, Anna Marie. Try not to be too confused. So, um, I was wondering, like the when you have these near-death experiences, for example, they are not really like like religion, but many, many times, even atheist uh, people experience like, oh, there is like a kind of a god, and it's like totally something that must be like coming from an un- like the unconscious part of the mind because it's not that they believe in God; it's just coming up with. When um, yeah, when they have these experiences, and I was wondering, like, is it uh, like, for example, how how can it uh, be connected with the Buddha's teaching? Like, is it coming from your mind that you would experience when basically your brain is like stopping? Like, usually these experiences uh, describe that there is no brain function or, or really like no no life function. So. No, no, what function? Like life, like functions uh-huh. of um, yeah, the body, and um, and basically, it's so for many people, it's it's so it's such a strong experience that it totally changes their life. Like this, I was just reading, like a woman was totally uh, uh, atheist, and then she became like very like spiritual, and it was real. Like she felt like this was more real than her real real life. And um, yeah, I was just wondering, for example, like uh, an arahant, when they would have a near-death experience, they would just not take it like personally, or is it something that you? I don't know. I was just. <laughs> <laughs> but if I, I if I can uh, if I'm following uh, what you're you're saying, it's um when when I was about eleven, uh, I figured out that we create God in our own image. That we we have the people can have these different experiences. I wouldn't say it's an absolute sort of dr- dramatic realization, but trying to think, trying to figure things out and think things through, that we can have these kind of experiences uh, of, uh, say, great happiness or freedom or a sense of, of benevolence, and then we use our conditioning to to interpret that, like, oh, Mother Mary's blessing me. Or Lord Krishna has come to, to, um, to I say, <clears throat> to confirm my spiritual nature, or, and uh, and so that we we take the conditioning of our surroundings and and the language we have, and and so if you grow, I, I've had lots of conversations with with Christian monastics, and and um, since I've been you know over these many years in the West and. And uh, it's often the case that people have had these kind of illuminating experiences, often when they were small children, and then they, and so the 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 feeling is, wow, that's extraordinary. Just sitting on the staircase, I was five years old, and just everything was perfect. And then it gets interpreted in a, in a in a Christian format because they're growing up in a Catholic family, and so it's like, was that Jesus came and blessed me, or was that Mother Mary, or? What happened? And um, so, if you grow up in a in a um, non-theistic environment, um, I mean, it depends which country it is and what the, uh, uh, what sort of spiritual background that you've had. But uh, you you would interpret it in different ways. That you would you would say, oh, this is um, you know the Deva's coming to bless me, or this is the Baramita of my past lives ripening. Uh, it would you know, read it in different ways. I remember one one fellow who came to stay here, who was doing an article about the monastery for a a, a newspaper, and was interviewing me. Um, this was back in the early '90s, I think, and um, uh, and so he was talking about how he became a committed Christian. And uh, if I again, it was a long time ago now, <laughs> but uh, so he was. I think he grew up in Malaysia when when Malaysia was a British colony. Um, and uh, so he was, uh, uh, I think, about nine or ten years old, and he wore glasses. And he was he was playing in the sea, and his glasses fell off. 
And then, and so he had this sort of panicky feeling of like, oh, you know, he was standing up to about his chest in the, in the water and his glasses fell off. And then he had this, this panicky feeling of, oh dear, I've dropped my glasses. Uh, I, yeah. will, will I be able to find them? Oh, you know, I'll get in so much trouble because you know, I've lost my glasses. And this, this uh, voice came into his mind saying, move your foot six inches to the left. And he moved his foot and there were his glasses. So then, and so he said, so I've believed in Jesus ever since. And, you know, I wasn't trying to be rude, but I, I, I was, well, what, my first thought was, well, what's I got to do with Jesus? <laughs> because my conditioning now is, is all around Buddhism. And, and, um, and so that kind of intuitive understanding or attunement to, to reality um, and the way things are, that can just be read as, as your uh, your natural wisdom, fortunately functioning and helping you to keep out of trouble with mum and dad for losing your glasses, <laughs> but it was really interesting that, uh, that his first thought was, you know, so that's given. I've had faith in Jesus ever since. That it was sort of Jesus telling him where his glasses were, where, and I'm not making fun of him. It was just, it was a sort of my immediate thought was, I didn't say it out loud. <laughs> But I thought that, I thought, what's that got to do with Jesus? It's just a, an intuitive understanding that popped into to the mind that sometimes we have those moments of, of attunement and people describe that you know, with um, you know, so avoiding accidents or such like. And uh, you, know, you can interpret it in all sorts of different ways. And so that I feel that one of the, the great blessings of Buddha Dhamma <laughs> is that we can sort of take a step back from that and say, oh, just because uh, I've got the conditioning of being a, a Muslim or a Hindu or, or a, a grown up in a communist country or, you know, secular materialism uh, or, you know, Christian background, then my mind interprets it in this way. But why should, I, why should that be the whole story? Or who says that's true? And uh, not wishing to undermine people's faith, <laughs> Because those can be sort of massively important events in a person's life, and a lot of good can come from that. You know that because of those sort of powerful, illuminating experiences, you can be drawn to living a very skillful life, which is a good thing. <laughs> but interpreting it as um, a uh, uh, according to your own conditioning and, and acting on that—that's uh, you know, they, that, I would say that's an unreflective way of relating to it. Okay, so to continue. If we practice with this in the right way, we can really begin to see the suffering and misery we create over the illusions about ourselves. We're not trying to create an, an illusion that there isn't any self. The point is not to go from the illusion of self to the illusion of there is no self, but rather to investigate, contemplate, and have insight until the ineffable truth is realized by each one of us for ourselves. Each one of us has our unique experience. We don't all experience exactly the same things. We have different memories, experiences, tendencies, and habits. And yet, we always relate these infinite varieties to Dhamma teachings. So we're not just making totally subjective interpretations. We apply the Dhamma teaching to our experience in order to be able to communicate and understand it in a context that is wider than that of personal subjectivity. So uh, again, a, a, a few uh, a few readings ago, I was talking about um, this very helpful essay written by Ajahn Tanisaro called "No Self or Not Self," and uh, so it's one of those very very common uh, misunderstandings that uh, you know that people say, "Oh, Buddhists believe in no self." Or, I'm a Buddhist. I believe there's no self, but. Uh, one of the things that Ajahn Tanisaro pointed out is you can't find anywhere in the Pali Canon where the Buddha says there is no self. Uh, what you can find is where he says if you cling to the idea there is no self, that's wrong view. <laughs> and that, that, that's clinging and that's going to produce suffering. And so, uh, again, it can sound uh, very, very similar that surely no self or not self is same same thing, isn't it? Isn't it? But it's not. It's rather, rather than saying, I believe that there is no self, it's saying that which I normally relate to as being the self 
the body, the personality, uh, our thoughts, emotions, memories, ideas, those things that uh, we call the five khandhas are not self. Uh, what the Buddha doesn't do is then go on to say, the real self is X, Y, Z, uh, but rather it's a um, what they call an apophatic method. It's a method of, of negation. So the point is to let go of the things that you're not, and what remains is the reality. You don't have to name that or, or conceptualize that or, or, or cling to that, an idea of, of a, a kind of a, a real me. But the Buddha approached it uh, in a way of just stop identification with what you're not, and then the reality is what remains. So that uh, we talk about reflecting on the five khandhas, you know, rupa, rupang anatta, the body is not self, vedana anatta, sensations, feelings are not self, and so on. Uh, sanya, sankara, vinyana, these are all not self. So through that letting go, um, then the, the heart is liberated from those attachments. But then to say, therefore, I, I'm, I am the, the, I'm the mind that is, is liberated. <laughs> I'm that which knows uh, that it's not the five khandhas. That's just a thought, that's a, a sentence, that's just a collection of words. So the, the Buddha tried to phrase things in a way that the, the pra, uh, practitioners or you know, those people uh, in, uh, aiming to follow his teachings, that they would embody that quality of uh, awakened awareness and not just have an idea about it. Because he could see, in the, particularly in the field of Indian philosophy, then having a set of ideas or religious opinions and beliefs and then defending them and saying this is right, that's wrong. That was a very, very standard way of operating in the Buddha's time, that you'd have a particular spiritual philosophy and then you would, you would sort of take that as, as true and then you would defend that against other variations, different philosophies. But he saw it's not just a matter of having the... <laughs> The the you know, the right idea you know, like sort of what you put on your T-shirt or you have as a, a magnet on your fridge. Yeah, you know, I am the I am the ultimate reality. That's what I am. That's yeah. You know, I, I am the Dhamma. The Dhamma is the real is the real self. Well, that's just a collection of words. It might refer to something that's closer to the reality than I am the body or I am the personality or yeah, you know, uh, I am uh, ultimately uh, uh, ultimately real. But it's still just a collection of words. It's just a concept. And so the, the Buddha's approach was to try and encourage us to not be creating a concept and hang on to a concept, but to uh, embody that realization uh, itself. The, um, when explaining or talking about anatta, for many people, it's very puzzling. They come across it in Buddhist books, and even if it's represented, uh, I would say correctly, as you know, <laughs> the, the the body is not self, feelings are not self, perceptions are not self, and so on, then people say, "But what, what am I? <laughs> if I'm not those things, then something's happening. There's something something's going on. So it's, there's something that feels very real here, and so." Uh, uh, I think that's a, a very fair point to make. And many, many, many times over the years, uh, people have asked that question, and I've also had that same kind of inquiry within my own mind. Um, because the, that quality of experiencing, of knowing, this seems to be the most real thing in our lives, I would say, for, for all of us. You know, we might be attached to our health or our appearance or our age or our gender or our nationality or our state of ordination or lack of ordination uh, but when it comes right down to it uh, particularly developing the meditation at the heart of it you know, it definitely seems like there's something going on <laughs> there, there's something there's some quality here that is experiencing that is the the center of experience there's a, a place where experiencing is occurring here and it feels real it's like the, the only real thing that we know or that we that is here so um what this the approach of the buddha is is doing particularly in this southern school uh, the uh, the theravada world the pali teachings is say uh, as i was just uh, uh, articulating is it's about embodying that quality of awareness being that that awake aware heart without 
hanging on to an idea about it, saying, "Yeah, I am the liberated jitter," or the or the the uh, the uh, the awakened mind is is the ultimate reality, and you hang on to that as a set of words or an idea, and then somebody says, somebody else says something different, you say you're wrong, then you got yourself here and there, the person over there, and there's an argument going on, and the mind has very definitely left that awakened awareness and has been born into my opinion, my view, which is different from from her or or his view, and so. The, the mind has lost that clarity of, of awareness. So the Buddha's teaching, particularly in the, the forest tradition and the Pali, uh, Pali canon teachings, is trying to uh, encourage that direct wordless uh, realization rather than just uh, adopting a philosophy and then um, holding on to it. And as Lumpur puts it here, we're not trying to create an illusion that there isn't any self. Uh, and then hanging on to that illusion, <laughs> but rather using the reflections on not self as a set of tools to help loosen the habits of attachment and, uh, and identification rather than a, a, a philosophy to believe in. So um, I like to, to think of, uh, of that, uh, say, the reflections on Anicca Dukkha Anatta, they're like a, uh, a collection of, of um, spanners to take the you undo the nuts on the on your the wheels of your car, or to open up the engine, or, or a set of um, screwdrivers with you know, different heads to undo undo the screws. Is a set of tools in order to bring about a particular uh, uh, de- uh, deconstruction um, to see how things are put together, rather than uh, a set of beliefs to to hang on to. So to continue. Often people deviate in their practice because religious experiences are interpreted too subjectively. So it's kind of following up what Anagarika and Marie were saying. So we interpret religious experiences too subjectively. They're not put across in a form that can be communicated. They become uniquely personal experiences rather than universal realizations. But the Buddha established a whole way of thinking and expressing the teachings that is exactly the same today. We're not here to change it and bend it all to fit our personal experience. We measure our experience with the teaching, because the teachings are so skillfully made that they cover everything. In the contemplation of Paticca Samuppada, we're coming to agreements on how its terms relate to contemplative experience. So when he's talking about having a, a, a format, um, to communicate and to um, say uh, use to to read and to interpret uh, our individual experiences, then he, the, the um, four noble truths and Paticca Samuppada, he's uh, that's the format that he's using or referring to as um, this is um, say uh, a whole way of thinking and expressing the teachings that worked in his time and works works today. It's like a format for understanding the field of our experience and particularly how dukkha arises and dukkha ends. So in the contemplation of Paticca Samuppada, we're coming to agreements on how its terms relate to contemplative experience. When you first read Paticca Samuppada, you don't understand it at all. Ignorance conditions karmic formations, karmic formations condition consciousness, etc. So what? What does that mean? You imagine it. it must, you, ma- you imagine it must be very profound, and probably takes a lifetime of studying Pali to understand. And so you tend to brush it aside. In Buddhist circles, the four noble truths can be glossed over. Oh yes, basic Buddhism. Yes. Now let's get on to the real advanced Majjhimika Buddhism. Or what did Dogen say? Or Milarepa is absolutely fascinating, isn't he? And you think suffering, origin, cessation, and path. Yes, we know that. Now let's get on to the real nitty-gritty. So the Four Noble Truths tend to be perfunctory beliefs. People don't investigate them or use them because the teachings in themselves are not interesting. Suffering, origin, cessation and path is not, as in, is not an inspiring teaching because it's a teaching for practice, not a teaching intended as inspirational. And this is why we use it. 
because that particular way of thinking and contemplating is psychologically valid. With it, we can begin to understand that which we've never seen or understood before. In following this way of practice, you're actually developing your mind and intelligence in a way that is very seldom done. Even in the most advanced educational systems, people don't really train their minds in this particular way of reflection and contemplation. To think rationally is highly regarded, but to understand what rationality is as a function of mind, you have to reflect on the nature of the mind. What is actually happening? What is it all about? And of course, these are the questions of exi existence, the existential questions. Why was I born? Is there a meaning to life? What happens when I die? What is it all about? Is it meaningless, just a cosmic accident? Does it relate to anything beyond itself? Or is this merely something that happens? And then that's it. That's the end. So there's, uh, there's a few things uh, in this. Again, um, as I was saying, like a, a, a set of, well, a, a socket set, <laughs> a collection of spanners and wrenches to take, uh, undo the, the wheel nuts on your car or to open up the engine. It's not particularly inspiring, but it's really handy. If you want to, take, if you want to change your wheel, uh, then it's really handy to have those spanners to, to change the, to undo the nuts and do them up again, change the wheel. So it's a, a set of tools to carry out a particular uh, a, um, collection of, of functions. So then, uh, you know, a screwdriver or a, a power drill or a, a set of spanners is not inspiring, but it's really useful. And that's exactly the way to see these these teachings on, like, say, Anicca Dukkha Anatta or the uh, the Four Noble Truths. That they're, they're not designed to be sort of making the heart sing. Dukkha, yes, yay, Dukkha. You know. <laughs> Even uh, when the Buddha says, I teach one thing, Dukkha, and the ending of Dukkha, it's like, and? That, that's it? Just the, the, the stopping of pain? That's all? So it's, I feel it's deliberately understated as a, a teaching tool that is not supposed to be inspiring, but it's, a, it's actually your, your kind of repair kit, your your jitter repair kit to um, to help us along in life, and uh, uh, one of the, um, the 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 things Dumpo doesn't spell it out here, but uh, uh, the relationship between Paticca Samuppada, dependent origination, and the Four Noble Truths is really that um, where the Four Noble Truths you're talking about the the, the truth of dukkha, the existence of dissatisfaction. The cause, which is uh, craving, tanha, and then the the, uh, the possibility of that coming to an end, dukkha niroda, and then the path, the way whereby whereby that ending is brought about. So, uh, what you have in Paticca Samuppada is really the 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 fine detail of how you uh, how noble truth uh, two. <laughs> The second noble truth, the cause of dukkha, where it's coming from, it spells out how dukkha arises, all the way from ignorance at the beginning up to to the uh, dukkha at the end of the 12, 12 links. And then the second part of it is dukkha niroda, how dukkha comes to an end. So with the uh, with this complete cessation of um, of attachment, of clinging, of ichayataveva, asesa, viraga, niroda, with the complete cessation of, uh, of ignorance, then there uh, the, the brings about eventually the cessation of dukkha. So what you have in the dependent origination and dependent cessation is like the fine detail of truth, noble truths number two and number three, you know, how dukkha arises, how it comes to an end. And so that it's, it's a very, they're very, very closely related teachings. And so Lumpur, as he speaks about them, tends to sort of move back and forth between uh, the the two expressions, but I think it's helpful to understand that that Paticca Samuppada is really just sort of holding up a, mag a magnifying glass to the Four Noble Truths, and particularly saying, okay, this is how dukkha comes into being. Starts off with ignorance and ends up with dukkha. Okay, and then how it comes to an end. If you start off with with vicha, with awareness, then you end up with no dukkha, with with nibbana. And then in, in other teachings, Lumpur spells that out very simply. Yeah. 
He says, if you start off with ignorance, you end up with suffering. If you start off with, with awareness, you end up with Nibbāna. So it's a sort of short version of Paticca Samuppāda, easy to remember. Also, during this same retreat, he was, uh, uh, he, uh, and he, when he was talking about dependent origination, uh, over and over again he would say, ignorance complicates everything. This is translation of avicca, pachaya, sankara. Ignorance complicates everything. Well, maybe one last thing. Um, when we, uh, with respect to the to um, dependent origination, you know, with uh, and Lumpur talks about these existential questions: Why was I born? Where, where did we come from? Uh, what happens when we die? Um, one of the significant things about the Buddha's approach, and again, it reflects how he was really practical in his in his teaching. Uh, that most religions um, all around the world of all, you know, of all different kinds, they have an origin story, a, a creation story of where where the world came from, where the, the moon and the stars and the sun came from, where where human beings came from. There's a sort of creation myth, um, and then. There is a uh, a goal. What happens when we die? You know, if we are, if we're, uh, uh, if we have, say, done well with our life, or we've been saved by some kind of uh, holy being, or we've um, achieved spiritual um, fulfillment, then we. Uh, it, most religions talk about where, where, quote unquote, where we go when we die. Um, if we've done well, to up to usually up to some sort of heavenly realm. And permanent, permanent salvation and bliss, or if we haven't done well <laughs> in various ways, then going to into some kind of uh, unfortunate realm or, or continuing on the cycles of of, uh, of rebirth. Um, but uh, what you have in the in the Buddha's teaching in the Pali Canon, you do have a, a creation myth, um, but it's, it's one of those interesting things about uh, about Buddha Dhamma is, yeah, you have got a story about how the universe began and how humans evolved and such like, but it's really not given much importance. The uh, one one place you can find the story is the Aganya Sutta in the Diganikaya, the the or, uh, origin of things. But it, it's like, yeah, there's a creation myth, but yeah, when a universe comes into being, it's like this. But you know. Don't make, any, don't make anything out of it. It's really played down quite a lot, but it's also in the context of this: the, the current universe is one in a, an infinite succession of universes that have come into being. They reach a, a limit of expansion, and they contract, and then the universe comes to an end. And then, during the the interstitial period between universes, then most beings are born in the Abhasara Brahma realm and, and above, and then boom, another universe begins. And then beings start sort of cascading into the, the levels of the different planes of existence. And yeah, that's how universes happen, but yeah, don't worry about that. <laughs> and so it, it's, to me, that when I, f- I first was getting acquainted with Buddhism, I thought, that's amazing. They, they have got a creation story, but it's really not a big deal. But what is the big deal is where the, the Buddha focuses right down to our personal experience. And rather than how did humans come into existence, or how did the moon and the stars and the sun and the planets come into existence? How did humanity come into existence? It's how did suffering come into existence? <laughs> Where did suffering come from? And then uh, the um, uh, you know, most religions, they, they talk about how you can achieve liberation or sainthood or salvation and, and such like, purification. Um, and the, uh, what... Um, what we have in Buddhism is, again, rather than uh, a kind of large-scale, say, way that we, as a as a human group, achieve salvation or liberation or fulfillment, it's what does this individual do in this moment? Uh, how how do we work with this moment? What do we do now? And uh, that is basically wake up, you know, be mindful, be aware, wake up, and then. Rather than having a, a, a kind of a, a heaven that we're all destined to go to, or that we're all going to be absorbed into Brahman or or, uh, or whatever um, on a on a kind of cosmic uh, cosmic scale, so uh, what happens uh, when we die? What the Buddha focuses on is you know, what happens when when dukkha comes to an end, <laughs> and, and uh, that 
so that it's a, it's a very deliberate narrowing of the field from a sort of cosmological, broad-scale picture that people can either believe in or not believe in to what you can do in your very, in your very life. So the, the focus is very pragmatic, going from uh, you know, where, uh, where do we come from, what do I do now, and where, you know, where are we going? Um, it's, it's narrowed down to the field of our own mind, our own heart, our own life. And that um, it, uh, uh, he kind of deliberately uh, doesn't make much of those bigger, what they call metaphysical questions, things that are beyond the scope of, of ordinary perceptions. But, you know, you can see dukkha beginning, and you can see dukkha ending you know, when there's... And you can see how it's when, the, when there is clinging in the heart, then dukkha comes into being. If the clinging is let go of, then the dukkha comes to an end. So that's all you need to know. And so his famous teaching of the handful of leaves when he's walking through the Simsapa wood close to Kosambi, and he picked up a handful of leaves and he said, so what's greater in number, the leaves in my hand or the leaves on the trees in this forest? And they say, well, of course, Venerable Sir, <laughs> the number of leaves in your hand is, is very few. The number of leaves on the trees in the forest is very great. And he said, so what I know is comparable to all the leaves in the forest. He understanding about the nature of the cosmos and the past and, and uh, the uh, planes of existence and the karma, karmic configurations of uh, the infinite numbers of beings. There's, but uh, what, I, uh, I know, what I know is comparable to the leaves in the forest, but what I teach you is comparable to the leaves in my hand. And what, what is that <laughs> that uh, I hold in my hand? Suffering, origin, cessation, path. Why do, I, why do I limit the teaching to just that much? It's because that's what is liberating, that's what's useful. That's what's genuinely beneficial. When I first heard that teaching, I thought, that's pretty stingy. <laughs> there must be somewhere that the, the, the rest of the leaves in the forest are all tabulated. I want to get my hands on the kind of, the, the secret doctrine. It's hidden away somewhere that uh, you can track that down. Maybe he passed that on to Rahula. Yeah. <laughs> he took it off to the mountains somewhere. And uh, after a few years, I realized, no. <laughs> It's, uh, he meant it when he said that's what's really useful so just don't, don't worry about the rest of it even though it might be fascinating and colourful it doesn't really help and so he was a supremely pragmatic, practical teacher and so uh, I feel that one of the things that Lumpur Sumedho is doing here is conveying that kind of essential practicality and also in Buddhist circles uh, as he found out when coming to the coming to the, the West in particular, that people would look down on the Four Noble Truths as sort of chapter one, page one, Buddhism. I see kind of kindergarten Buddhism. Oh yeah, Four Noble Truths, okay. Let's get on to the higher teachings and the, sort of the, the more refined doctrines. And that's where he refers to these kind of Majjhimika Buddhism or Dogen or the songs of, 100,000 songs of Milarepa and say, the Four Noble Truths is glossed over as, well, that's not very exciting or interesting. It's kind of obvious, really. Uh, let's get to the more subtle, refined, and powerful teachings. So, uh, and really following Lumpur Cha and, uh, and Lumpur Buddhadasa in particular, they uh, they both emphasised: don't don't think this is kindergarten Buddhism. This is this is the essence of the essence. This is this is the whole deal, really. If you if you truly understand this, then that, it'll make all the difference. And the, in the Pali Canon, it, the Buddha says that he said. It's because of not understanding four things that both you and I and all other living beings have had to travel and trudge through this endless round of births and deaths. What for? Suffering, origin, cessation, and path. So any questions, reflections, thoughts? Chankachana. Just something, I guess a minor comment is that I've, I, I've heard it said that some some of the modern some scholars think that the the creation myths that do appear in the Pali Canon may be parodies. In that um, Maybe what? parodies parody. Yeah, so like the life of Brian is to um, <laughs> the you know the Christmas. I mean. And so we wouldn't know because we don't know the because we aren't familiar with the original. Uh -huh. But that would fit with, for instance, the 
Kevada Sutta, which is clearly parody. Yeah. And um, and it would, yeah, it would seem it seemed to fit with the Buddha's teachings in de-emphasize to, to de-emphasize this. You parody it. It's it's fun, and then you realize, right? Don't focus there. Yeah. No, I mean, I don't. I don't know. I doubt that that's known for sure, but it's. I've heard that it's been said. That's interesting. I, I hadn't heard that, but it, as you say, it, I think it's, it's quite possible, because uh, also um, uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi and then his teacher, Venerable Ananda Maitreya, both of them have pointed out that there's a lot of puns and, and double meanings in the in the Dhamma, and most of the Western translators missed a lot of that because of not being familiar with with Sanskrit or Hindi or, or um, Indian languages, and, and they wouldn't catch the associations. But often, just the, the choice of words that the Buddha uses, there's, 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 a, there's a sort of subtle dig, or you know, like the, don't, uh, don't pay, uh, uh, yeah, don't don't give this too much respect. Like uh, when the the Buddha goes in the Brahma Nimantana Sutta, when the, the invitation of a Brahma, the Buddha goes to visit the Brahma god Baka, who had been a a teacher of his in a previous lifetime, and and Baka's under the impression that he's the creator of the universe, the supreme deity. And the Buddha, out of compassion, goes to visit Baka to to relieve Baka of this uh, wrong view. And uh, it wasn't until Venerable Ananda Maitreya came and stayed here in the um, the late 80s, he said, oh, well, Baka Baka means a heron in, uh, in... uh, Indian in in Sanskrit and in Indian uh, Indian mythology, and a heron in, in Indian folklore is always kind of proud and haughty. Got this uh, a very long beak, a beak even longer than my beak, you know, kind of looking down its nose and feeling so superior to all the other all the other animals, the other birds, and so it's a kind of pompous, proud. Uh, 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 the quality that it has. So calling the Brahma god Baka, calling him Heron, uh, is as a clue. Like this is not a very respectful name. <laughs> it's like this is a proud, haughty. And then that the Brahma, the Brahma god, has got this impression: you know, I am the Almighty, the Omniscient, the, the Creator, the the uh, Orderer of all that are uh, and all that have been. So coming across here, you know, I am, I am the one. Uh, um, and but right there in the name, and I, and I would never have known that. And, and Venerable Ananda Maitreya said, "Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a not very subtle dig on the part of the Buddha using that name to, to tell that story. That uh, there's a kind of pompous, arrogant quality that uh, that you're you're led to. So it's quite possible that creation myths have got some some uh, aspects to them that uh, you know you would uh, you wouldn't necessarily recognize at at, uh, at first sight." As they do, continue a little bit. We have great problems with relating the meaning of life to anything real beyond the material world. So materialism becomes the reality for us. When we explore space, it's always on the material plane. We want to go up in rocket ships, take our bodies up to the moon, because according to the, the materialist view, that's what's real. Western materialism lacks subtlety and refinement. It brings us down to a very coarse level of consciousness where reality is this gross material object and the emotions are dismissed as not being real because they're subjective. You can't go around measuring emotions with electronic instruments. But of course, the emotions are very real to us individually. What we're feeling is really more important to us than a digital watch. Our fears, desires, loves, hates and aspirations are what really make our lives happy or miserable. And yet these can be dismissed in modern materialism for a world based on just sensual pleasure, material wealth and rational thinking, so that the spiritual life seems to many people to be just an illusion because you can't measure it with a computer or examine it with electronic instruments. Yet in pre-scientific European civilization, the spiritual world was the real world. How do you think they built the cathedrals and art? All this came from a real sense of spiritual aspiration of the human being connected to something beyond the material world. Spiritual truth is something each one must realize individually. Truth is self-realization, the ultimate subjectivity. 
And the Buddha takes subjectivity to the very center of the universe, the silent, still point, where the subject is not a personal subject. That still point is not anybody's or anything. In meditation, you're moving towards that. You're letting go of all these attachments to the changing conditions of the material world, the emotional plane, the intellectual plane, the symbolic plane, the astral plane. All that is let go of in order to realize the still point, the silence. This letting go is not an annihilation or, or a rejection, but it gives you the perspective to understand the whole. You cannot understand the whole from being out on the circumference, where you just get whirled around. Being whirled around on the circumference, that's the, the, the outside limit of a circle, you cannot understand the whole from being out on the circumference, where you just get whirled around. Being whirled around on the circumference means that you're lost in attachment to all the things that are whirling around. It's called samsara, where you're just going around in circles and you can't get any perspective in samsara. You have no ability to stop and watch or observe because you're just caught in this circular movement. It's also kind of neat that the the world, W-H-I-R-L-E-D, <laughs> is, is also a, a feature of the world, W-O-R-L-D. That, that our worldly thinking means we're whirled around, we're spun around in, uh, in that perspective. So, yeah, so in this, uh, this um, passage, Lumpur is talking about how uh, the um, sort of materialistic approach um, can you know, overlook the, the, the spiritual... Again, the, the landscape has changed a little bit. This was given in 1988. And so um, subjectivity is becoming a bit more uh, allowed in the, the Western psychological field. And you can measure some emotions with electronic instruments nowadays <laughs> in various, various different fashions and measuring different parts of brain activity. But, um, but the, I think the, you know, the point that, that Lumpur is making is that... Um, when we uh, say put value in uh, materialistic considerations we try to find a sense of meaning and value in, in the sense world then we're always going to be spun around we're always going to be caught in these cycles of liking this and disliking that wanting this, fearing that um, gaining and losing and so forth being sort of whirled, on the, whirled around on the circumference of things and that spirituality, as he's sort of defining it here, is that coming to that, that still point, the, the center of the spinning, uh, spinning wheel, the, center, the still point at the center of the, the turning world, as uh, T.S. Eliot put it. And that the, uh, this, the teaching of the, of the Buddha about letting go of everything, letting go of the, um, the, all these different... Um, say aspects. Uh, Lumpur uses this phrase: "This is the ultimate subjectivity," and the Buddha takes subjectivity to the very center of the universe, the silent still point, where the subject is not a personal subject. So, like I, I was saying earlier today, how that sense of well, something's going on, something's happening, that, uh, and this quality of of knowing. Well, Lumpur is saying the this. Uh, uh, subjectivity to the, the ultimate subjectivity that quality of awakened awareness is uh, as i feel what he means by that ultimate subjectivity that and uh, as he says the buddha takes that subjectivity to the very center of the universe the silent still point where the subject is not a personal subject so that which is knowing this life this body this mind this world that which knows the person isn't a person. It's or you could you could say it's that in a way it's the essence of what a person really really is. What the, it's the essence of what this this life this this quality of being really is. Um, but uh, that maybe makes it sound a little bit too complicated. But uh, it's the the very heart of our reality is this quality of knowing of of awareness. But uh, the more that is clarified, the more that is embodied, uh, then the less personal qualities. It's not old, it's not young, it's not female, it's not male, it's not, uh, uh, it doesn't have an age or a name or a nationality. 
it's a, a completely transcendent quality. And so Lumpur uses this image of, of the silent still point. Also, he says that he uses this, this terminology, the, the center of the universe. And in this same period, he, uh, Lumpur would sometimes say, the heart of the universe is your heart. You know, you are the center of the universe. This, uh, your awareness is the, the center of the, the world. And so coming to that, that central point, that central still point, is really um, the, the um, uh, in a way, the, the embodiment of the practice. And that uh, when that, in that moment where, the, where there is no, no grasping, no clinging, no identification, and there's simply this uh, awake, aware quality, then there is uh, uh, yeah, this profound inner silence, inner stillness, and quality of, of wholeness, of, of fulf uh, fulfillment. So it, it takes a, a letting go of everything, <laughs> as we were saying, and the, and the, uh, the, the uh, morbio inferiore, letting go of all our familiar attachments and identities, um, the changing conditions of the material world, the emotional plane, the intellectual plane, the symbolic plane, the astral plane, so <laughs> letting, letting go of everything. But then the result of that uh, is this embodiment of, of the Dhamma, There's, uh, the qualities of peacefulness, purity, limitlessness, uh, brightness, radiance of the, of the heart. Any questions, thoughts? Yes, Anigarika Evgenia. I need to come back a bit earlier about uh, Dukkha and the end of, of Dukkha. Um, may I ask, is it right that uh, you can put it into two categories, like the Dukkha that arises? Sometimes it could be something like um, you lose your awareness and there is some kind of suffering, but if you understand it quickly... Um, if you what? If you understand your cleaning quickly mm -hmm. and you can put it down, uh, it stays like it, it disappears. Like you, you saw what it was, you put it down. Okay, nothing left. Go on. But sometimes it could be some um, big chunk of <laughs> <laughs> big chunks. Yes, technical term <laughs> of, of dukkha, and you um, can digest some bit of it, but it doesn't uh, dissolve so quickly. Mm -hmm. It means that there was some kind of long time clinging that uh, manifests and uh, the more energy it was put there, the longer it would take to digest it and basically you couldn't really um, sometimes you couldn't uh, take it all at once and you will have mm -hmm. to work with this big uh, energy chunk because before you didn't see it and you didn't put mm -hmm. it and you invested a lot and then kind of you have to okay digest this big kind of huge mountain little by little kind of over the time <laughs> <laughs> is it so uh, yeah it's exactly that way um that uh yeah if it was just a matter of uh oh i, I see that uh, i have a habit of being angry or lustful or jealous Oh, that's not good. Mm. <laughs> no. the, uh, just recognizing that the habit is there is one thing, but then the the process of, of letting it go and counteracting that the the habits of of grasping um, that uh, that takes a lot of patience. I mean, in in one, you know, one in a hundred million people, then they are. Or, or more, <laughs> one in a billion, the, you know, they will see, oh, look, that's a, that's a really unpleasant attachment, Boop. and then they let go of it completely, just right then and there. But I, I really feel that's like one in 10 million, one in 100 million kind of rarity. Most For, for most of us, in most situations, just the recognition of where the identification, the attachment is, and then it's a very um, slow and patient process of um, watching that habit being um, acted on and then letting go and or seeing oh that's a dangerous habit you then so you train yourself to try and not put yourself in situations 
where you're going to get angry or get jealous or get lustful or, or uh, they're going to support those the, the uh, unskillful uh, obstructive habits but it, it's a uh, it's a big chunk <laughs> many big chunks and uh, the process of, of the practice and why it's a it's a path is talked about you know, we use the word bhavana which means development it's like a it's a slow process for most people most of the time and so that um, being patient being ready to to recognize the effects of those habits that have been those that have been caused in the past you, know, you can't undo past causes but here in the present moment you can receive the effects of those past causes you can know oh that's i'm reacting that way because i've been obsessed with with fear or i've been obsessed with greed or, or um, i've been uh, you know, caught up in in jealousy or, or competition or whatever it might be and you're, you're experiencing the effects of those past causes and so that the work of the present moment is letting go letting go letting go letting go and then slowly the big chunks get worn down yeah? depending on how focused uh, how much of a priority we make the practice how how well we we work with those attachments but they they do wear away that's why the 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 the, the path has an end <laughs> dukkha niroda is possible but it uh, it depends on that patience and resolution being ready to to stick with the with the practice and and be patient you know and then if you're waiting for it all to be over <laughs> then that creates more causes for more suffering so it's like patiently carrying on doing what's necessary to to say let go of the effects of past causes and then in the present moment you create causes for for freedom for happiness for for uh, liberation yeah, for for peacefulness but that's by the the choices that we make in the present you you plant causes now to bring liberating effects in the in the future does that make sense so once again patience is extremely essential important is essential that the, the um not not expecting things to sort of be over in a flash but it's a um, for for most of us it takes a, a lot of work for a lot of years <laughs> to uh, and to steadily meet the the effects of of the conditioning of this life and to meet it receive it and to to uh, let go okay i think that's enough for today <laughs>